Good morning. If you could stand as we read God's word, that would be really great. We are going to be reading in Revelation 12. And I'm not sure what page it is on some of your Bibles, but on the one with the bigger print, it's on page 1136. So just depending on which one you have, it's in the back. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even until death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the te testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. If we've never met before, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to preach this passage about a woman in labor and a dragon that wants to eat her baby and then some water shooting out of his mouth and an earth opening up, drinking the water. There's just a lot going on in this passage. So 
Let's pray together and ask God to speak to us through this, that he would um, lead us, guide us, love us in this time. Let's pray together. Uh, God, as we open up your word, as we do each week, we just pray and we expect, God, for you to continue just to work in our hearts. Uh, as you do each week, would you just use your word to encourage, to lead, to convict, uh, to guide. God, would you show your presence through this. And God, would you even equip us as we enter back into the world after today to follow you well, Jesus. So please bless this time. We love you and we thank you. Amen. So when I was 21, I flew out to Canada with a few friends uh, for me to go propose to my now wife, Annalisa. Uh, my wife is not from Canada, but she was working there for that summer. Uh, I didn't see her for a month at that time, and I sent her with all of these different letters to read. And then it was, it was like in this little book, the very last letter was ripped out, and it was the letter I was going to bring to her. It was my proposal letter to her. We're flying out to Canada, and I have my, like her ring in my hand. It's like a wooden ring with pearls in it. It was really unique because I wanted to be creative, and I was really broke. So <laughs> we're flying out to Canada, and uh, when we get there, I, I just start getting nervous. Uh, I'm, I have this anticipation to propose, but I'm also excited at the same time. I remember we woke up the day of the actual proposal, and I'm, I can't eat. I'm just like, I got to get this thing done. So we're, we're going to meet her. It's her last day at the camp. And when we get there, we set up this whole thing uh, at this dock. It's like this little memory from the first day we met. It's the letter. Uh, and then I'm hiding under the dock. She, like, walks up. She's reading the letter. The last, like, note of the letter was to jump three times so I can hear her under the dock. I didn't hear her because the ocean was there. So I end up walking up. I surprise her. She's like, oh, my goodness. If you see the video, she's crying. It's like a loud cry. Ah! Like, she's so excited. I give her a hug. Remember, I haven't seen her for a month. And the first thing I say to her, I think it's just because, you know, proposal, I'm blacked out. I say, it's happening. Like, it's just. <laughs> Who says that right before proposing to somebody? So I get down on the knee, whatever knee I practice to go down on. I ask her, would you marry me? She says, yes. All the friends come out. We celebrate. Woo, this is amazing. And in that moment, when she said yes, we enter into this exciting, kind of stressful, awkward time called engagement. Some of you are in that season. Some of you have been past that season. Some of you are hoping to be in that season. It's just weird. It's like we know where we were. We were boyfriend, girlfriend. We know where we're going. We're going to be married. And we're just here. We're in the already, but not yet. Like, oh, man, I'm, I can't wait for that to happen. But we're, we're excited. We're building up towards this great ceremony of celebration and family and fun and intimacy. We're building up towards this, but we're not there yet. That's kind of the Christian life currently. Like, we're in this engagement season right now. We're in this already, but not yet. That's the picture that's being displayed at the beginning of this passage. Let me just read this to you. It says this. In verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, to shepherd all the nations. But her child was caught up to God 
to his throne. So just to give a picture, the woman represents a few different things. It represents kind of Eve and Mary, the bride of Christ. It's a few different things, but the child is for sure Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He dies, he resurrects, and then he ascends to the throne. But now the woman fled into the wilderness where she has been placed, or a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, taken care of for, for 1,260 days. So here's the picture. 1,260 days is three and a half years. It's halfway to seven, halfway to completion. The picture is we're in this middle season. We know heaven is coming. We've been saved by Jesus, but we're waiting for that great ceremony. Jesus has resurrected. He's defeated death. He's rose to the throne. People that are found in him are saved. But the wedding day hasn't happened yet. We're in this engagement season. And this is why when we embrace Jesus, the world is still broken. We wait and we wait and it's awkward. But we set our lives on Jesus. The next three sections of Revelation are all about this middle season. This liminal space, this in-between, already but not yet. And it's specifically, for the next three sections, about the temptations you and me face in the middle of this season. This passage is specifically about the temptation that we will face because of an enemy that is pursuing us. And this enemy is the devil, chasing after all of us, trying to lead us towards death. As we look at this, what God wants to do for the original readers and us is to give us some tools on how we can live in this middle space when there's a real enemy that is chasing after you and me. Here's the big idea today. The biggest tool that we will receive from today's text is this. We must battle the deceit of the enemy with the truth of Jesus. We must battle the deceit of the enemy with the truth of Jesus. So this is what today's message will look like. We're going to talk a little bit about Satan just to give us some good groundwork on who he is. And then we're going to talk about three specific ways he tries to deceive you and me and three specific ways that we can fight those deceptions. So with that being said, let's talk a little bit about Satan for a moment. To give you a picture of what's happening in this passage, he looks up to the heavens, it says. Basically, the translation is into the sky. And there's a woman with a crown of 12 stars. The 12 stars reflect God's chosen people. And then there's a dragon with seven heads. It displays that he wants to be God. He wants to have the power. But he cannot defeat God. It says this in verse 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer a place for them in heaven. The defeat comes from Jesus being rose from the grave, defeating death. This is a picture of the war, but it's ultimately Jesus that wins the battle. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Uh, to give you a picture of what Satan's reality is right now, we're in this middle space but so is he. He's waiting for his final destruction. And he, in this time, is trying to take advantage to pursue all of us. So how is it that he does that? 
Uh, the first thing that we need to note is this for all of us. We need to know Satan is real. Uh, there's a study, and this is the reason I emphasize this. There's a recent study that's shown the majority of Christians in America do not believe that Satan or the devil is real. And maybe you're here, and it is hard to believe. Like, it's hard to think that Satan is real, mostly because of the way that we depict him. He's like sparky at ASU. Or he's like, last night I'm looking for my key everywhere. I can't find my key anywhere. And it's like one of those moments like, the devil's at it again. <laughs> he knows I got to preach a sermon about him tomorrow. And then I find it on the seat on Anna's car. I'm like, it's just me. I misplaced the key. <laughs> like, I think it's hard to believe in Satan, mostly because of the way that we depict him. But the first thing that we have to know is Satan is real. Satan was real for Jesus. And if he's real for Jesus, then he has to be real for us. And if he's real, we need to ask, what does he do and what is he like? Here are just a few notes on the devil. The first thing is this. He is an intelligent, powerful, but he's a created being. There's a picture. He swipes his tail. Three stars fly down. It's a display. He is really powerful. But we need to know he is created by God. That like picture of the devil and Jesus arm wrestling is not a real, like, that's not a good depiction of him. There's no equal power there. He's created by God. The second thing is this. Satan is one of his titles, but not his name. I only say that because later on in the sermon, we're going to talk specifically about what Satan means. Number three is this. He rebelled against God and against the original role he was given. So he was created. It could be easy to think, well, did God create him this way? Well, God gave him an initial role, but he actually turned his eyes from that and disobeyed God and acted against God because he wanted to be God. And then number four is this. His primary desire is to lead people to death. This is seen from the time that he interacts with Adam and Eve. He has a desire to lead people towards death. Now, the question is, how is it that he does that? The passage that we just read says, Satan is the great deceiver. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Satan's main function is one of deceit and lies. Jesus says this in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan wants to lead you and me to death primarily by deceiving us. And we need to recognize the devil is really good at his job. He's a good liar. There's a difference between bad and good liars. Bad liars aren't believable. They're like little kids. Kid walks up with chocolate on their face. Did you eat chocolate with the snow? No. Like, dude, figure out how to lie before you lie to me. Like, it's just, they don't know how to lie yet. They're not good liars. Good liars know how to twist and intertwine truth with a little bit of deceit so that it's believable. This is what Satan does. He's really good at being deceptive and lying to us in ways that we see and we go, I believe that. Like, the picture I get is, he sets our eyes on something that's not true, but makes it seem as if it is. 
Recently, Mr. Beast, if you don't know who that is, he's a YouTuber. He's like the guy who does big challenges. Hey, 100 people, put your hand on a Tesla. Last person to take their hand off, you win the Tesla. And three days later, they're like, there's two guys left, and one of them finally fails. You won. That's Mr. Beast. The other day, he comes out with a video. It's an ad, and he's like, hey, I'm doing one of the biggest iPhone giveaways. If you just put in your information in here, you have a chance to win an iPhone. You'll enter into the raffle. So people are putting in all their information to see if they could win this iPhone. Just to find out, it wasn't Mr. Beast. It was AI. Someone put in Mr. Beast's face, made his voice, made it seem as if it's him so that they could get some info from people. That's good deception. Making it seem as if it's true. Setting our eyes on something that's not true. And making it seem as if it is, but it's really a lie. This is how Satan kills us to lead us towards lies and deception that takes our eyes off of Jesus and puts our eyes on something else. Richard Bauckham says it really well. Perhaps the most important contrast between the forces of evil and the army of the Lamb is the contrast between deceit and truth. This is our battle. We must battle the deceit of the enemy with the truth of Jesus. So what are some of the main ways that the enemy tries to deceive you and me? Let's look at just a few ways. Deception number one is this. The enemy sets our eyes on our sin. Verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The enemy is the great accuser. In Hebrew, the word Satan, remember it's a title, is translated as accuser. Accuser of what? Accuser of the people and the sin of the people. His goal for accusing you and me is to set our eyes on our sin. Here's his motto for us. You are nothing but your sin. Uh, the most honest, vulnerable version of all of us would confess we have sin that we still have to deal with. Like some of us have sin in our past. Some of us have things right now in our life that we are going through, still wrestling with. And some of us here have some significant sin. Like things in our life that we just go, I don't want anyone to know about this. Because if they do, they're going to turn their eyes away from me. And the accuser comes to us and says, you are nothing but your sin. You're nothing but your past. You're nothing but your mistakes. You're nothing but one who misses the mark. This is something that's really easy for all of us to believe. And I bet some of us here right now believe this lie. And when we do, it leads to either this constant shame in us or a constant embrace of our sin. Like some of us here have an unending shame. We can't get past the shame from the sins that we've committed. Especially those of us that have sinned in some significant ways. We look around at the church and we say, he looks like he has it more together than me. She looks like she has it more together than me. I just have this sin that I can't deal with. We ask ourselves, are we really Christian? And the voice keeps on playing in our head, I'm not good enough. Or on the other side, the same lie can result in us just accepting our sin. We either say, well, 
everyone has some sin. This is just mine. Or we think I can't beat my sin, so it's just going to be part of who I am. And then we keep on sinning until whatever guilt we had just begins to disappear. For us, we have to fight this lie with the truth of Jesus. What Jesus wants to do is to take our eyes off of our sin, which is a real thing in our life, and to set our eyes on him and the blood of the lamb. Verse 11 says, they have conquered the enemy, not by their own works, not by striving, not by working harder, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. When our eyes are focused on our sin, we focus more on ourselves than on Jesus and our neighbor. The way to fight this lie is to begin to look more at the grace of Jesus. And then through that to love the people around us. If you're here and you're struggling with this, I just want you to know this one thing. Jesus' grace is stronger than your sin. We have to set our eyes on Jesus so much that it takes our eyes off of our sin. So how do we do this? Uh, the picture I get is this. My wife used to watch the show Dr. Pimple Popper. That's how I feel, whoever said gross. It's like every time it was, like it was just, it's gross. But I just, I'll never forget this one episode. There's this guy. He has this thing. I wrote it down because I'm not a doctor. It's called a lipoma. It's like a fatty tissue, and it was in his arm. And it started off small. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew. It was right by his bicep, and then he just embraced it. He called it his Popeye arm. Like, it's like, like Popeye, the one who eats spinach. Like, here's a picture of it. I'm not going to show anything gross. There's his, like, he's like, this is my Popeye arm. And then he ends up on Dr. Pimple Popper, and then I would have throw up, and then we could take that off the screen. Um, <laughs> that's a picture of, of sin in us. Like, the more we keep our sin in secrecy, the more the lie continues to build that we are nothing but our sin. It grows, it grows, it grows. And sometimes it grows to the point that we just embrace it. Oh, yeah, that's my sin. That's my Popeye arm. Like sin just continues to grow in us. And the only way we can fight it is through confession and through community. That is the only way that we can continue to be reminded of the grace of Jesus. Sin stays alive in our life through secrets and isolation. But we need to continue to embrace confession and community. In big ways like this, to be reminded of the grace of Jesus through song and through worship and through reading his word and through communion. Places like our small groups, RCs, where we can take our mask off. Like RCs aren't supposed to be a place where we need to impress anybody. It's supposed to be a place to say, I'm broken too. Like we're all broken here. Can we help each other walk through this? And then just place of intimate community, people that can keep you accountable. I have a good friend. We meet every two weeks, and every time we meet, he just asks me the question, how have you failed this week? I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I think, and then I come up with a number of answers. And every time we meet, how'd you fail? But it's a consistent awareness. Oh, yeah, I still have work in my heart to do and in my life. I consistently need Jesus. This is our hope. Here's deception number two. The deception number two is this. The enemy sets our eyes on our fear. There's this whole section in here. It sounds like a Disney movie, anime, something like that. Dragon's chasing the woman. He's shooting water out of his mouth. She has eagle wings flying everywhere. 
The earth opens up and drinks the water. Dragon gets all mad. What's happening here? Like when you just use your imagination, it seems like Satan just wants to flex his muscles. Be like, look how powerful I am. But every time he tries to show his power, the Lord creates a way of freedom for the woman. Like this is the same reality for us. But what Satan wants to do is to take our eyes off of the provision of God and set our eyes on the fear that cripples us. For all of us, there is natural fear. And when we set our eyes on fear, it either results in a constant passiveness or a deep dependence on ourself more than God. Like some of us have unending fear about things that cause us to freeze. Fear about financials, finances, fear of sickness and disease, fear of losing someone, fear of your job, fear of man, fear that like weighs on your chest. Like just constant fear around us that causes us to freeze and to never take action. And some of us have fear that make us go, I'm not going to pray about that. I'm going to go deal with this myself. Never trusting God but putting things more into our own hands. Fear in itself isn't bad. But when we set our eyes so much on fear, it leads to us taking our eyes off of God. So how do we take our eyes off of the fear? I think about baby Dom, 16-month-old little baby. My son isn't afraid of a thing. He's not afraid of heights. He's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of me. I figured that out. The other day, I'm watching Dom by myself. I turn away. I look back. He's on top of the dining room chair. I'm like, I'm a little impressed. I'm impressed that you're not afraid right now. The other day, we're at the park. He goes up on like a jungle gym. I go, Dom, wait for me before you go down the slide. He looks back at me. He looks back at the slide. He looks back at me and laughs at me. And then he nosedives through the slide, not afraid of anything. And then even when there's any perception of threat, all he does is this. He, he walks over and he puts his arm around my legs and he stands next to dad. Doesn't even look afraid, but he just knows dad's there. This is God's desire for you and me, to not have fear in our life because we can trust him. But more than that, when there's a perceived threat, that we can go to dad, the dad that will always take care of us. To take our eyes off of fear, we set our eyes on the provision of God. The same God that we read about in all of these stories is the same God that we worship when we come to church, it's the same God that walks through life with you and with me. It's the same God that we can go to when fears come. When we're scared of the things out in the world, we can always go to dad. And there's times where we'll feel like, God, are you doing anything? But we can trust he will always provide. Here are some of the practical steps that we can take to actually make this happen. The first one is, Daily silence. Fear stays alive in the unrest. When noise is just coming into our minds constantly, fear just continues to build up. But truth gets unburied in the silence. Silence teaches us something. We are not in control, but we have a God who is. Like when was the last time that you just, just spent time doing nothing? not praying, not reading, not watching something, not on your phone. 
just in silence. When we spend time in silence, for all of those, for all of us that are stuck, frozen because of our fear, when we spend time in silence, we can be reminded God is in control. We can step into those fears. For those of us that don't want to surrender to God, we want to hold on to everything in our life and keep them close. The silence teaches us we're not in control. We can rest and we can submit to God. The other thing is this. I really do think that we just need to be people that write things down. I have a friend that has a God book. Him and his wife write down every time God answers a prayer so that when it feels like God's not responding to them, they can look back and say, look what God did. They prayed for so many things. For one thing, they were praying for years until God finally answered that prayer. They could always look back and say, God provides for us. Here is the last deception. The last deception is this. The enemy sets our eyes on a false hope. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. If Satan now goes and makes war against those who keep Jesus' commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus, then it seems he will use his main tactic, deception, to lead them to not keep his commandments and not hold on to the testimony of Jesus. In order for Satan to do this, he needs to set their eyes on a different hope. It leads to a different version of the good life, not one with Jesus as Lord, not one where Jesus calls the shots, but one filled with pleasure, no suffering, one where we are in control. So how does this deception play out? Satan wants us to have autonomy from the true God. He doesn't care if we say we believe in God as long as it's not the true God. He wants us to have our eyes set on a version of God or Jesus that we define and make up ourselves. And when we do this, it leads us to be obedient to ourselves and our version of God instead of being obedient to the creator that designed us and the world. Satan wants us to abandon Jesus. And in many cases, Satan wants you and me to praise Jesus with our mouth but worship anything else with our life. This lie is really believable. On one side, for, for some of us, it's because life is going really well. We go to church on Sundays. We have a good amount of money. We have some investments. Marriage feels smooth. Our kids are doing well. And when life is smooth, it's easy to think, do I really need God? Do I need to be dependent on God? I think I've got this whole thing figured out. Or on the other side, when things are not going the way that we thought they would be. Marriage is difficult. Maybe you don't have what that person has. You made a big mistake that you don't want to own up to. And the lies start to come in. Well, if I was just married to somebody else, this would be easier. Or if I could just buy this or buy that, I'd be content. Or if I could just lie a little bit to get out of my mistake, then I'll be fine. In these moments, we cannot bite the fruit and become our own gods. We have to trust the God that loves us. And we do this by reminding ourselves of what is true in these times. The truth here is we need to set our eyes on the written word of God. We need to set our eyes so much on the word of God it actually becomes who we are. 
But we have to think about this. We have to be aware and make a good analysis of what we actually consume on a day-to-day basis. Just to give some perspective here, the average American spends seven hours a day on a screen. The average millennial spends 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content. And only 5% of that is Christian-based content. So 95% of the media intake is YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Netflix. If we're all to be honest here, for all of us, like if we just checked our screen time for a moment on not just your phone, check your laptop too and your iPad. But like, you go, oh man, I spent a lot of time here. And we have to be aware, what is it that's shaping and forming the way we think about the good life, the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about the world? What we need to do is get the truth of God into our blood. So much so that when moments come, we have automatic reaction. The picture I get is, uh, I used to work at Dutch Bros, kind of. So anyone here that actually works at Dutch Bros would say I didn't because I only worked there for two or three months. But my wife worked at Dutch Bros for four years. You can tell the difference between me and her by the drinks that we know and we don't know. Dutch Bros has a lot of uh, unique drink names. So they make you study all the names and the combinations so that when the moment came, it would be natural to apply it. So I would sit there, remember two or three months, someone would come up, could I get a double twisted drink with a fruit berry and a cranberry? I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're saying right now. I can't give you that. But then Anna would be like, yeah, totally, that's easy. Like, what? Like, they just studied it so much, it was just natural. This is the way the word should be. We should study this so much that when the moments in the world come to bring temptation, that we could just apply it naturally, that we could love our neighbor well, that we could serve people, that we could die to ourselves, that we could praise Jesus and be obedient to him. But the only way we could do that is if we know his word, who he is, what he's commanded us to do. This is the only way that we can follow Jesus well. Here's the practical way that we could do that. The practical step is to enter into daily reading of Scripture. Here are my two pieces of advice for anyone here that just needs to enter into reading your Scripture daily. The first one is just pick a verse in the Bible that you can read. Like if you like the ESV, what we read from each time here, then read that. But if you need to start in the message, then read the message. Start in a verse of the Bible that you will actually read. And my second piece of advice is, Each morning, read your scripture before you step into your phone. Like, it's just easy for us to jump into the world right when we wake up. But allow God to speak to you in the morning before the world does. Here's how I just want to close this message. We must battle the deceit of the enemy with the truth of Jesus. What I don't want this message to be is overwhelming. I don't want it to feel like you need to go now and practice everything that we said. Rather, I just want you to ask yourself, what lie are you believing right now? Uh, Here's a picture of just what we talked about today. There's a little graph. The enemy sets our eyes on these things. But we set our eyes on Jesus, the provision of God, and the written word of God. Uh, What is the enemy trying to set your eyes on right now in your life? Is it your sin? Is it fear? Is it a false hope? Here are ways that we can battle those things. Uh, Here's an even more practical version of this for the how. The second graph says this. 
this is how you can apply this this week. If you are battling with sin, then this week, make a phone call of confession. Find someone that you can trust, that you can just call this week and say, I just need to open up to you. If you're battling with your fear, then this week, pick a day just to spend 15 minutes of silence. It's going to feel like forever. But it will just remind you, God is in control. And maybe if you're battling with a false hope, then just spend time this week, even if it's once this week, jumping into Scripture before you open up your phone. With all being said, let me just pray for us as we enter back into the world. And before we do, we're going to continue to worship God together through song, through communion, and through prayer together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, you are well aware of the realities that we live in right now. So much aware that you gave us guidance and how to live in this middle space. You are aware of our temptations. You are aware of our fears. You're aware of our sin. You're aware of our false hopes. Thank you for providing ways for us to set our eyes more on you. God, would you help us do so? God, would you please help everything that we go to in the word become practical things in our lives, things that we can step into to follow you well. God, would you shape us more into your image so that when the moments come, when the enemy tries to deceive us or lie to us, we can easily and naturally look back to your truth. God, would you please lead us, love us, guide us. Thank you, God. Amen.